Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Today we're in the Coeda and Donald Barker Gallery in the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art. My guest is Anne Rose Kitagawa, chief curator of collections and Asian art and the director of academic programs at the University of Oregon's Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art. Kitagawa curated Framing the Revolution, contemporary Chinese photographs from the Jack and Susie Wadsworth collection, currently on view through August 27th, 2023. Thanks, Anne Rose, for uh, joining us today. It's great to have you with us. It is my pleasure. So first, um, tell us how this exhibit came about. So the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art at the University of Oregon is the very lucky beneficiary of a major collection of contemporary Chinese photographs from uh, Jack and Susie Wadsworth, who had previously given us a large collection of post-war Japanese prints in 2012 that we um, worked with students and faculty to mount a special exhibition and produce a catalog. Um, a number of years later, they came to us and said, you know, we have this large collection of Chinese photography. Do you, th can you think of any museum that might be interested? And um, our former director said, we would. And um, probably it's a good thing she didn't quite understand the magnitude of the collection because um, it's quite large and very distinguished. And it has taken a good deal of time since 2018 when it first came in um, to get it organized, but this is the first of a series of exhibitions that we'll be mounting with this material. So you say it's quite large. How large is it? How many, how many photographs are in the there collection? There are 192 items, 190 photographs and two videos, and um, it has grown since it uh, first started coming to us, so we are especially excited about that, and um, it covers quite a range, so it's very exciting. So first, um, how does this uh, donation add to the Asian collections of the Jordan Schnitzer Museum, which is founded as an Asian art museum. Yeah, so our museum was founded by a collector, an um, American collector of Asian art, who was born in Chicago in um, 19, I'm sorry, 1863, Gertrude Bass Warner. And um, she was married and divorced and moved at the age of 40 to China where she met and fell in love with her second husband, and they together collected amazing Chinese art, Japanese art, Korean art, they traveled all around, and they really grew to love and respect the cultures, the religions, the literatures that they encountered. And after reloca relocating to the US, and after her husband passed away in 1920, um, she moved to Eugene, Oregon, where one of the children from her first marriage was then a professor of law here at the law school. And she started negotiating with the university president, saying, um, your relatively young university doesn't have an art museum, and my collection of give or take 3,800 works of East Asian art doesn't have a home. If you help me raise money, I will bequeath my collection to the state. So as you indicated, we were founded as a museum of Asian art. And ironically, to become global, we had to expand to embrace the West. Um, the Wadsworth collection brings us up to date. Um, Gertrude Bess Warner died in 1951, and so the great historic part of our collection is, of course, bounded in earlier Chinese dynastic history. And um, it's wonderful to have that material, but people today want to see artwork up through the present. And between a gift from the contemporary artist Hong Liu, um, also in 2018, and the Wadsworths, we are just lousy with riches and so incredibly grateful to be able to represent China up through the present. So can you give us a sense of the temporal scope of, of the exhibit? 
So the exhibit covers the earliest, chronologically the earliest photographs in the Wadsworth collection. So we have uh, 54 photographs representing seven photographers. Uh, the earliest photograph is dated to 1958. The latest is to 2006. But the historical span of what they are representing actually covers a broader period of modern Chinese history, going back through, I think the earliest represents about 1928. So can you give us, I know this is a crazy question, can you give us some sense of what the major historical events during that period are that we should be aware of? There are a lot. <laughs> um, Chinese history during the late 19th and early 20th century is tumultuous, to say the least. And um, much of this exhibition focuses on the history of China and specifically the Communist Party, and especially the terrible, violent skirmishes between the Guomindang, the nationalists led by Chiang Kai-shek, and the communists who eventually came to be led by Mao Zedong. And um, starting both um, beginning in the 19-teens and 1920s and coming out of the change of China from a sort of imperial culture into um, a republic and then the ideological search for how are we going to lead this new country um, and then you know at certain times they joined forces and then in 1927 they very famously became mortal enemies when Chiang Kai-shek turned on the communists and um, one of the really important moments that is referenced in the artwork in this exhibition is a period called the Long March in which about 80,000 communist forces retreated from southeast to northwest China over 370 days, over about 6,000 miles in some of the worst terrain um, under enemy fire, you know, and outnumbered. So um, the casualties were horrendous. Um, about one in 10 of the people who began at the beginning um, were no longer with the group by the end. And, um, but that, that difficulty is kind of the crucible from which the Communist Party derives so much of its power. And Mao Zedong came to the fore during that period. And um, even with subsequent events, you know, the, the second um, Sino-Japanese War between 1937 and 1945, Ultimately, the communists, against all odds, were able to rout the nationalists and push them out of the mainland so that Chiang Kai-shek and his forces ended up retreating to Taiwan um, with the expectation that they would come back soon thereafter, but it has not happened. Um, and uh, the communist, um, the People's Republic was established in 1949 with Mao Zedong at the head as the chairman. And, um, you know, subsequent events that are reflected in the show are, for example, the, um, the so-called Great Leap Forward, in which China attempted to catapult itself into a modern industrial society um, out of a peasant-based agrarian society, very poor, and unfortunately because of unrealistic goals and um, many, many people ended up starving in what was called the Great Famine. And, um, and then in 1966, after Mao Zedong was no longer head of the government, but was still head of the Communist Party, he became so disenchanted with his former colleagues 
he felt that they had become entrenched and um, he encouraged the youth to rise up against them in something called the Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution. And so from 1966 through 1976, there was turmoil as young people rose up and schools closed and um, there was a great deal of a number of purges and violence, um, many deaths, still untold numbers of people um, suffered during that time. And only eventually later, with the death of Mao Zedong in 1976, did things kind of come back, if not to equilibrium, at least to a more free, a more sense of, of freedom um, that is reflected in some of the other photos that you see in the exhibition. So there are a lot of historical <laughs> events that end up being That's covered in this show. Impressive survey. Um, tell us a little bit about how the uh, exhibit is organized. So um, because the show covers a broad scope of history and a number of different photographers, it's generally organized by photographer and there are bodies of work. Um, the only photographer in the collection who is no longer living is the first photographer in this show. Um, his name is Wang Shirlong. And um, he started, he was trained as a socialist realist um, painter. So he was producing communist propaganda um, in service to the revolution. And over time, he segued into becoming a photographer. And even though he was ostensibly a journalist, there is a propagandistic aspect to the photographs that he produced. And the photos that we have reflect 1958 through the early 1990s. And they all show sort of collectivism, people coming together and reshaping China in order to affect this revolution. So then uh, his photos are followed by photos of members of the STARS art group. Right. So what was the STARS art group? So with the death of Mao Zedong in 1976 and the sort of turmoil that happened after that as one successor was displaced by another and um, in fact a number of people associated with Mao who were deemed to be responsible for the atrocities of the Cultural Revolution were rounded up and arrested. Um, there was this period that we now call the period of reform. It starts around 1978. And the Hong Kong-born artist, uh, Liu Hongxin, who um, was educated in part in um, Hong Kong and in part in the United States, um, was hired first by Time Magazine to go back to China in 1976 after de the death of Mao, and then became an associated press photographer and was sent there and was stationed there for a number of years, starting in 1978. And he, having lived in China in earlier periods, was really palpably aware of the, the feeling of not full freedom, but relative openness, um, and the possibility that people could finally say what had happened to them. And so he documented everything that he saw around him, including the, um, something called the democracy walls that went up in various places, most famously in Beijing, where in the past, because not everyone could afford a newspaper, they used to post newspapers up on the wall for people to read. But at this period, people who wanted to speak out about what had happened to their families during the Cultural Revolution wrote what were called big letter posters. And they were first person statements of this is what happened at this time and this is how these people suffered and I hold the government responsible for this. Um, and so he documented 
that, people reading those signs. And he also documented this young group of artists who, of course, because schools had been closed during the great proletarian cultural revolution, had not been formally schooled. But with the opening of China, had been able to glean a little bit about avant-garde art outside of China because during their upbringing, the only art that was allowed in China was political art, pro-communist uh, propaganda. And so they wanted to deviate from that socialist realist model and do um, impressionist style works of art, expressionist style works of art, abstract works of art, things that the government did not condone. And um, they really wanted to have an exhibition and they knew that the officials were not going to allow it. So they kind of took power into their own hands and instead of having a show inside a museum, they hung their artwork without permission on the gates outside of the China Art Gallery in Beijing. And um, the officials predictably went crazy and said, you cannot do this, this is not allowed. And so made them take all of the art down at which point, because they had been young Red Guards and they knew how to do political protest, they protested. And they did so in a really savvy way, holding up signs saying things like, we protest in support of the Constitution. And they, um, there are documentaries now where you can hear the artists today talking about their feelings at the time. We see the pictures and they look so brave and defiant but they were terrified because they knew what the stakes could be, but, um, but they won. The, the government allowed them to put their show back in place in Beihai Park, and over the course of nine days, over 200,000 people came to see this weird avant-garde art that the government did not sanction. So some of the work in the show is affiliated with the so-called Long March Project. So tell us what the Long March Project was and also tell us about the miniature Long March series that's in the show. So, um, so we talked a little bit about the Long March, the historical thing, which was a horrific um, event. Um, and 70 years later, uh, a number of artists, particularly the founder and artist curator, um, uh, Lu Jie and his collaborator, the artist and theorist, uh, Chu Jie, got together and thought the Long March would be a, a prominent metaphor to use for artists to look back at Chinese history and sort of analyze how revolutionary thought has transformed art. Um, that's a very wide-ranging statement and I think as many different artists who participated in it um, interpreted that in different ways. But in 2002, for three months, they staged a reenactment of the Long March, which was not as long or as arduous, but they went from some of these significant places and they had art exhibitions and performances, um, discussions with local people, um, interrogating the meaning of the Long March and its significance today. And so in the context of that, a number of artists did various projects. Um, Qin Ge, the artist that you mentioned, was an art student at the time in Beijing. And he did not physically go with the people who spent three months on that long march, but he documented their progress in a series of tattoos on his back where he had the map of China tattooed, and then each time they got to the next significant spot, he had 
that place and its name tattooed on his back. So what we have in the exhibition is a series of photographs showing his back as it changes. Um, there are 14 of them from that first period, but uh, the Long March Project didn't finish in 2002, and Chinga felt that he had half of the Long March on his back, so three years later, he got a photographer, a videographer, and the tattoo artist together, and they finished the Long March going to each of the last nine spots and tattooing him and photographing him in situ. So the last nine photographs don't have the plain studio background, but you actually see his back and he is kind of looking into the landscape. So they're fascinating. We also have the video documenting the whole process. So some of the most amazing and striking photographs are the assembly hall series or a, a selection of the assembly hall mm -hmm. series. So tell us about the assembly hall series. So uh, the artists of that series, um, Xiao Yinong and Mu Chun, were part of the original Long March project. They traveled along with the group. And in many of those sites, there were historic buildings that had been used by the communists for political meetings during their retreat. Those um, audience halls or assembly halls are important kind of historic pilgrimage sites today. And the artists sought to document them, but um, interestingly, the way that they did so is in these gorgeous, large, still, empty images, so that you feel as if you're standing at the back door of one of these buildings. And the buildings are similar in that they all seem like they're set up almost as sacred altars to the Communist Party. Um, at the front there is you know, some sort of place where someone would present and there are images either of Marx and Lenin or of Mao and Judo, there are communist flags and other symbols. But the buildings are architecturally distinguished from one another in that there's a theater, there's a classroom, there's what looks like a Confucian um, commemorative hall. And so you get the sense of you know, people using the spaces that they had, and it's so poignant the way in which they are completely empty. So it feels almost as if the meeting just happened and everybody just left, or it's completely caught in amber. And it's very ambiguous, and the artists really wanted it that way because they, they talk about how every Chinese person has you know, difficult family memories from this span of history. And rather than essentially telling you what to think, it's leaving space for people to fill it with their own thoughts. So will you tell us about this piece? So um, this is probably the most famous photograph in the exhibition. Um, this is a work um, representing the artist Shaolu, um, who is at the um, February 5th opening of China's avant-garde exhibition in Beijing. And um, this was, you know, in 1979, the artists were not allowed to have avant-garde art in the museum. By 1989, the officials relented enough, grudgingly, to allow an avant-garde show to take place, but they tried very hard to maintain control, and one of the things that they said is, we want no performances. So as soon as the opening started, of course, a lot of artists started doing performances. Mm -hmm. And um, Shalou did not announce her performance beforehand, 
but um, in the midst of a lot of other very strange performances in which people were shouting and throwing condoms or washing their feet in a basin with Ronald Reagan's face on the side of it or selling frozen shrimp or other things, she walked in and pulled out a pistol and shot her own installation. And ultimately it was this act, not just of anarchy but of potential violence, that the authorities used as the, the way to shut down the exhibition. And amazingly, Shaolu was able to vacate the building, give the gun back to the person who had lent it to her, but she came back a few hours later realizing she should probably turn herself in since terrible things have happened. And um, ultimately, um, she ended up, for ironic reasons, coincidental reasons, just a few months later, after the death of a politician named Hu Yaobang, um, students demonstrated in Tiananmen Square. And that unfortunately coincided with a um, Soviet uh, summit that was supposed to happen. And because the students were there, the Soviets couldn't come and meet at the Great Hall of the People, and the government was very upset. And so the ensuing, the demonstrations and the ensuing violence that happened were somehow grouped together with these young rebellious artists. And Shaolu was somehow made, not a spokesperson, but people kind of credited this as the so-called first shots of the revolution. A, there was no revolution, mm. B, she had nothing to do with it, but um, she had to vacate the country and she left and settled in Australia for many years and um, years later came back. And the story is much more complicated in the sense that um, at the time, co-authorship was ascribed to a classmate of hers, which in fact was not true. And it has taken years for her to try and get the story back to the original story, which is unfortunately very sad. Um, but we are, as a teaching institution, we are here to have some of those tough discussions about art and life and war and um, and in this particular case, um, misogyny. And um, so it's a very important work of art for us to be able to discuss with faculty and students as well as the public. So let's talk about um, the students. So tell us about how the UO's students have benefited from the Wadsworth collection of uh, contemporary Chinese photo photographs. This is just the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, so this is the first official show from the collection. We've shown a few individual works at different times, but um, certainly having the show out on view means there are all sorts of classes that have been coming through. Um, faculty have been deeply engaged with it. Students have been coming, doing papers, um, you know, lots of discussion, and it's extremely gratifying to see. Um, we've had a number of events associated with it, bringing in different scholars, and of course all of the, um, the wise counsel that we've gotten from all of our faculty colleagues has gotten them excited about the material. So it's been great to incorporate the insights of colleagues much more knowledgeable than I about Chinese history. So um, history professors, art history professors, East Asian languages and literature professors, people in the Honors College um, have all just begun to reap the benefits of this collection. But that will go on. So tell us uh, who the faculty are that have been most helpful to you in this endeavor. So my co-conspirator in so many things Chinese is our leadership council member, Professor In Asim, a specialist in Chinese history, who has doggedly answered every question that I have asked 
and but cannot be held responsible for any mistakes that I have made in the organization of this show. Um, in addition to Professor Asim, um, Chiara Gasparini and uh, Simone Cilia in art history, um, Roy Chan in East Asian languages and literatures, um, Bryna Goodman in the history department, and now Roxanne Prozniak in the his, um, Honors College have been you know, very engaged and very excited about bringing their students. So there are some other um, related works that are on view with this exhibit. What are they and why are they there? So um, we in the past have had a special exhibition of Chinese Cultural Revolution propaganda, which I never would have thought I would be so besotted with, but it is fascinating material. And um, we're very fortunate that we've been able to collect a number of really great pieces. And so we have three works that relate to the historical themes in the show um, on display just outside of the gallery. So those are works that reference young Mao Zedong in reference to the, the um, Long March um, and images that are the exact, you know, the, they're posters that reproduce oil paintings of the Long March. And they have all the hallmarks of the artwork that was created as propaganda, which was supposed to educate and inspire people. So very um, didactic uh, works of art. And, and some of them incorporate, for example, Mao Zedong's poetry. Um, one of the works actually shows one of the meetings that took place in Gutian, in one of the assembly halls that is documented by Xiaoyinong and Mu Chung's photograph. So it's really exciting to be able to juxtapose this very active, uh, propaganda image with something that is much more ambiguous. Can you tell us about one or two of the educational programs uh, associated with the exhibit? So um, in February we were so honored to have um, two great lines in the field. Uh, Johnson Zhang, a sp uh, scholar and gallerist uh, based in Hong Kong, and Jane de Bavois, who um, just stepped down as the head of the Asian Art Archive. Um, they did this wonderful uh, talk contextualizing the show and talking about this period of time. Uh, Bryna Goodman has done a talk um, giving a sense of the political developments that took place over this very complicated period. Um, Chiara Gasparini is going to give a talk about the creation of art during this time. And I think Ina Asim is going to round us off in June with um, uh, talk kind of giving the broader historical context of why China's um, politics and culture changed the way that it did on the basis of some of the developments that happened in the 19th and very early 20th century. So this one's a hard question and I don't know if you'll really be able to answer it. Are, do you think there are any sort of shared aesthetic characteristics to the photographs in the show? Well, they're all photographs, but uh, we chose them in part because of the diversity. Um, you know, this show reflects different uses of photography for journalism, for propaganda, to document performance and as protest. And so I think the medium unifies them, but this is just one grouping of these and just the first of many because we're privileged that they belong in our collection so we'll be able to juxtapose them with each other with other things from now on so you mentioned a couple of times that this is just a part of the collection right so um 
what was the what principles did you use to select for this first exhibit? Well, because this was the official debut of the collection, we wanted to pull together an exhibition that would speak to as many disciplines as possible. And um, many of the even more famous works um, in the collection reference performance art. But, um, I mean, this is kind of the outlier. Chalou is performance, but it's also this very important historical political moment. Mm -hmm. um, but this seemed like something that would get not just art historians and studio art, but historians, literature specialists, people who do sociology, politics, literature, you know, all sorts of different fields excited about this material. And, you know, this particular moment when Chinese and U.S. relations are not ideal. Um, it, what I'm struck with as I walk through the exhibition is how the meanings of photos change over time. Um, photos that were taken for a specific purpose, you can still see that purpose, but you can reflect upon them with the passage of time in different ways. And I think that's really um, prominent as you walk through this gallery. So can you give us a sense of, some kind of sense of the rest of the works that are in the show? I mean, that are not in the show, but are in the collection? So there are 137 other works uh, by nine other artists. And um, boy, I don't think I can run through all of the artists. I, I, that's not necessary. Yeah. Just give me a sense of what's different fr uh, from these in those. So many of those were done in the 1990s and early 2000s, and they reflect this openness and creativity and relative freedom that artists had just at a moment when China was first being welcomed into global art and or global contemporary art and um, lots of experiments and um, some of them, uh, they're so mysterious and fascinating. Uh, many performances, um, John Huang's meat suits, um, you know, all sorts of events that um, I think people re really enjoy studying when we get those works of art out. But um, I wanted to start with something that would speak to a much broader audience mm -hmm. because not everyone is interested in performance art, but hopefully everyone is concerned about history and that's something that the show really focuses on. So you say when, uh, when these other works are out. Mm -hmm. so. Are there plans for more shows from the collection? We will have a series of exhibitions of the Wadsworth Collection. We are in the um, advantageous situation that um, if we deinstalled the entire museum, we wouldn't really have room to put all of them out at one time. So um, for that reason, it's a privilege to be able to do a series of shows. And perhaps the greatest gift of all beyond the collection and the means to help us support exhibitions, displays, our new collections lab where the works will be accessible even after the show comes down. Um, the Wadsworths have very graciously given us seed money to hire a curator of Chinese art. So hopefully a specialist will be curating the next exhibition from the Wadsworth collection. Okay, and Rose, well that's a good place for us to end. We're out of time. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul. I've been speaking with Anne Rose Kitagawa, the Chief Curator of Collections and Asian Art and the Director of Academic Programs at the U University of Oregon's Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art. Framing the Revolution, Contemporary Chinese Photographs from the Jack and Susie Wadsworth Collection is on view at the JSMA 
uh, through August 27th, 2023. Thanks so much for watching.